Hello everyone, this is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to the third installment of our multi-part series on cryptocurrency taxation. In the first two episodes of this series, we discussed everything from the basics of cryptocurrency taxation to more advanced aspects of cryptocurrency taxation. In future episodes of this series, we'll be discussing tax implication strategies, long and short-term gains, tax loss harvesting, cryptocurrency regulations, including past regulations, current regulations, where the future regulations may go, and how those regulations affect you as a taxpayer. And finally, we'll be discussing real and hypothetical cryptocurrency tax situations with tax professionals. We'll be talking directly to cryptocurrency tax professionals who have been in this space for years. They'll be sharing their experiences, their tips, and any hurdles that they've encountered in the crypto tax space. Any question that you have about cryptocurrency taxation will be answered in this podcast series. So be sure to stay tuned each week for a new episode. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing cryptocurrency audits, and we'll be talking to Alex Kugelman, a tax controversy lawyer who specializes in cryptocurrency taxation. He's always a great source of information when it comes to cryptocurrency audits. Alex, thank you very much for talking to me today. Hey, Sal. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, Alex? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm an attorney uh, practicing in California. Um, you know, I kind of got involved with tax issues when I, I clerked for a U.S. tax court judge, and that's kind of the the forum for most kind of federal tax disputes. And then um, I've been in private practice since 2014 and got involved with crypto in 2016. And I kind of deal with anybody or help anybody who has any sort of compliance or kind of what we, what we would call a controversy issue, an audit or kind of some sort of tax litigation um, with the IRS and other other tax agencies. In our Crypto Tax Explained series, the last two episodes, we went over the basics of cryptocurrency taxation. We talked a little bit more about advanced cryptocurrency taxation. Today, we're going to be focusing on your specialty, which is cryptocurrency audits. So I guess the very first question I'd want to ask you, Alex, is what would you say generally could cause a cryptocurrency audit? Uh, that's a great question. So th there's, a, there's a few different triggers that are out there. Um, I think the first and the foremost trigger is going to be information provided by third parties. And for most people, that might be you use a, a mainstream uh, platform that issues a 1099. Um, and that 1099 now is, is similar. It's, it's a 1099B like you might get from using, you know, a, a traditional stock brokerage. Um, in the past, they used a different type of reporting called 1099K, which I, I can go into later. Um, but primarily, they'll be trade uh, reporting, you know, all of the activity and kind of the gross value of that activity. Um, and it probably won't reflect a lot of basis. Um, and so that information is provided to the IRS and provided to the state tax agency. And that's kind of reconciled against the, what's filed on your return. So that's definitely one area. Um, kind of piggybacking on that one is if that is is filed by the platform and you don't file a return, that is a tremendous uh, risk and um, audit risk for that person because there you have information or the IRS has information that there's a whole bunch of taxable events uh, and no return filed. And that's kind of no holds barred in those audits. Um, the next thing that I see kind of that will will trigger some sort of audit will be people who who collaboratively trade on a, a platform with an account associated with a single person. So let's say, you know, a group of people, they decide, hey, we're gonna start doing some arbitrage trading and let's use, let's go out and use DeFi and then we'll off ramp through, you know, Joe Schmo's Coinbase account. And of course, Joe, it's not all his income, so he doesn't report it. Um, so that can be an issue. And then I think a third thing is just whenever you have um, high volume trading 
that has substantial amount of proceeds. So the value of what you actually sold, but when you, when you engage in high volume trading, you also have very high basis, which offsets that um, you might see, you know, seven, eight or nine figures of activity and that kind of a corresponding amount of basis. So the net gain is relatively low as a percentage. Um, that's an area where the IRS might really want to look into it and see, um, and see if, if the basis being reported is correct. And that's really interesting because more and more we see people with these really high, you know, six, seven, eight, nine figure proceeds. And, and like you said, basis. So that means that the IRS could be starting to be a little bit more aggressive with their crypto tax audits, which is something we are seeing this year, right? They are being a little bit more aggressive than, than the previous year. Yeah. I mean, so crypto became a point of emphasis for both IRS criminal and civil back beginning in like 2018, 19 timeframe. Um, and it kind of all kicked off with the, you know, the, uh, the John Doe summons issued to Coinbase. I think that was in late 16, early 17. Um, and I didn't mention that as a potential audit trigger. There have been efforts by the IRS to issue these kind of blanket summons to different platforms um, to get all the trading data and then the, you know, the AML KYC, right? When you start up an account, you provide your, your name and your social and your driver's license, right? And so the IRS can go to those platforms and basically say, hey, give us everybody's um, trading data that had more than X amount of activity. And that's gone out to a number of platforms. Um, and so that kind of all began back in 16, 17. Um, audits started to go uh, in, in 19 and we're starting to pick up in 20. And like everything else in our world, COVID kind of changed everything. And what it did for the IRS is it basically um, ground everything to a halt. And so crypto audits really slowed down for a while, but then kind of picked up in the past year or so. And you know, you're seeing not just audits run out of, say, a national office for the IRS, but now local revenue agents who are the people that do um, conduct typical audits that we think of, of of businesses and individuals. They're now now leading um, audits or exams for for people that trade in crypto. And these audits have increased in the number of them, and they've also increased as far as the intensity of the audit and kind of what it takes to kind of resolve an audit. All right, Alex. So, what exactly does a cryptocurrency audit entail? Okay, so. You know, first of all, I, I've, I've talked about this in other podcasts with you, Sal, but there's kind of different levels of audits. And this is just generally the low grade audit is going to be something called a, a correspondence exam or just an audit by mail. And that might be where there is a 1099 issue. You file the tax return and you get a letter from the IRS that says, you know, dear taxpayer, we received this 1099 from Coinbase. We don't see it reported on your return um, with those types of exams. Um, it's really all by correspondence. It's really focused on that tax year. It's focused on that issue. Um, generally, those can be resolved by providing the accounting and providing an explanation. Um, and you have to keep in mind, just big picture here is that subjectively, a lot of people trade, and let's say, for example, like a year like 2022, where most of the trades, if you bought in 21, you're gonna be experiencing losses regarding your trading activity. So I, I had a loss, I don't owe any money. And that's kind of the thought process. Mm -hmm. Well, the reality is, is the amount on the 1099s is just showing the gross proceeds or the value of the activity. And so it's kind of, it's the responsibility of the taxpayer to provide that basis information. Um, and generally that those audits, 
that's how they're resolved. It takes a little bit of work. It takes some accounting and some follow through, but usually you can get the IRS to um, uh, close the case, kind of agreed with something consistent, what you think is correct. Now, the second level of audit is something that I would call a field exam. There's also something called an office exam, which is kind of in between, but most, most of the audits for crypto are either a correspondence or a field exam. A field exam is um, conducted by uh, someone of the title revenue agent. Um, so if you get an audit notice, definitely want to look to see uh, in a signature block what the title is. Um, now, a revenue agent will start an exam with a, a letter generally, and that, that's assuming that you filed the return. They'll start with a letter. And um, in that letter, they will identify what tax years are uh, included in the audit. Um, they'll identify what are the issues on the return. And, and for most people who are, you know, engaged in an audit, if listening to this podcast, maybe they have, you know, typical salary income, maybe some, you know, stock compensation, um, and the typical things on a tax return, and then they'll have crypto. So that audit is really focused on the crypto portion of the tax return. And, you know, primarily, you know, any sort of crypto activity is going to be reported on a, a schedule D and form 8949, just like stock transactions. And there may be some also some ordinary income, uh, which might be things like staking or, you know, airdrops or forks. And that, that's most people, um, what it would be focused on. And so when you get an audit, you have a choice of whether you want to represent yourself or have someone represent you. Um, and that's certainly a cost benefit analysis for everybody. But whether you do it yourself or you have a representative, essentially the opening part of the audit is to schedule an initial meeting with the auditor. Um, in the initial meeting, there will be an interview, right? And that interview, you can kind of, you can actually Google, not so much the script, but they have audit technique guides mm -hmm. for different topics. But basically, they're going to be asking a whole bunch of open-ended questions about the tax return, who prepared the return, what information was used, what were any mistakes on the return that the taxpayer is aware of. So on the outset, this is the first benefit. And again, this is what I do. So I'm going to say there's a benefit to do it. But um, on the outset, having the representative communicate on behalf of the client or the taxpayer has a real benefit because you're not put in a spot where, you, again, you can't provide false statements to the IRS. You can't mislead them. Um, you know, that's totally unlawful. But you do want to provide information that is relevant to the audit and you want to provide information that is accurate. And like all of us, I've talked about this before, you know, most people are honest people who are, you know, really have nothing to hide. So when you get into a situation like that, you may say things that you're doing your best to recall, but maybe are inaccurate. So taking your time to have good answers and have clear and concise answers um, is really, really important because that that can drive how the audit plays out. Um and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about records in uh, as we kind of go through here. But, you know, for most people, when you're talking about audits for crypto, we're not talking about what happened six months ago or a year ago. We're talking about things that could be three to 10 years ago. And nobody has clear recollection of that, right? Mm -hmm. And there is data out there that kind of can be obtained and it can be kind of reconstructed through accounting methods. Um, and that's, from my perspective, really where were these audits where they turn either in a good way or a bad way for a, sp a specific client. Yeah. And I think another part that you touched on briefly about having the importance of having somebody like you on their, in their corner is that 
these IRS agents don't necessarily know everything about crypto. And the person doing the crypto transactions don't necessarily know everything about cryptocurrency. They might be using DeFi protocols that, and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, that just seem fun. You know, it's a social media network that is built on crypto, or it's a it's a literally a video game that you earn crypto. They might not know, the people doing that might not know the implications, the tax implications of their activity. And then you throw in the mix an IRS agent who also doesn't really understand the tax implications of these very kind of like niche or not super popular crypto activities. Um, and it's a recipe for disaster if both parties involved don't really know much about it. So having somebody like you in their corner is really important because you have a team that has expertise in these fields, right? Yeah, no, I appreciate the advertisement there. And I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think in the past with crypto audits, really what the audit was, was providing the um, transaction ledgers for all the data, then providing accounting. The IRS would basically what I would call spot check transactions to see if it kind of corresponded with all the activity re reflected on the um, transaction ledgers. Mm -hmm. And they weren't necessarily easy audits, but they were usually pretty straightforward, right? Um, if you had good accounting and you could walk people through how the accounting was done, uh, those audits you know, usually ended agreed and they were not overly involved. Yeah, those Even were the, the, the good old days of audits. <laughs> the good old days of crypto audits. I don't know if that's how my clients felt, but it, it, <laughs> to a certain extent, if, if your audit happened pre-COVID, um, you know, you may have owed tax, but it was probably a pretty good result uh, in hindsight. Um, you know, now it, it's a totally different ballgame. So let, let's talk through what the IRS does now on these audits. So the very first thing that they're going to do is um, they're going to issue you what is called an information document request or an IDR. And that IDR is going to ask for a whole bunch of information, um, things like wallet addresses, platforms that you used, um, uh, information regarding uh, you know, any sort of custodial wallets, um, you know, both hard and soft wallets. Um, and talk about you know hey did you have these did you ever pay anybody in crypto were you paid in crypto um and, and just uh, just a whole bunch of information they're asking right now going back to that original interview you know that that's hard to remember all that information and, and i know that a lot of clients didn't necessarily track things like wallet addresses you know a lot of people would maybe used a, a certain type of wallet for a while and then switched over to a different type and then you know or or experimented with various wallets right and they may not have that data anymore, right? And it's not really reflected anywhere because it's not like, hey, this was a buyer or a sell or a sender or receive on Gemini, right? So there's a whole there's a whole bunch of information out there that the clients don't have. So before you even respond to that IDR, you really want to have try to reconstruct as as best as you are able um, all the information that you can, so you understand, you know, hey, oh, I forgot that I was using this platform. I mean, that happens all the time. And that happens mm -hmm. just generally with the accounting all the time. You know, so once you kind of get that IDR and get that information, start pulling that together, and this is not necessarily a hard and fast rule, but the IRS's MO is to always set deadlines and um, request things in a relatively short amount of time, especially considering how difficult this kind of um, accounting and reconstruction is. So the first thing to keep in mind in that situation is that it's totally reasonable to request more time. 
Nothing is going to happen if you don't respond to an IDR that says we need the information in two or three weeks. It's not like someone's going to show up at your door. You do want to be responsive and tell people that you need time, mm -hmm. but you don't need to let the IRS dictate the, the game clock on, on the audit, right? Because um, what's most important is making sure that we have, you have the most accurate information as possible. Um, meanwhile, the IRS, and this is a total new development, the IRS now as a matter of course in every single audit will issue a third party summons to um, platforms that they're able. And that basically means US-based crypto platforms. And if you did AML KYC with any platform, that would be on the list. If you if you had an account, that would be on the list. And I've also just seen auditors, you know, let's just say for example, um, you identify three or four accounts, but you didn't identify an account with Poloniex, they still might issue a summons to Poloniex, right? And that's why it's very, very, very important to be careful about what, you know, what information you provide in that initial interview, because you don't want to be in the position where you've said, hey, I had only had accounts at these specific platforms, but oh yeah, you forgot that you had that account, you know, five years ago with, you know, or you opened an account and did, you know, a couple a couple trades and then said, I don't like this account and stopped using it. You really want to make sure you have a complete understanding. And when you do provide information, you want to make sure that you're providing it in a way that you're not boxing yourself in. You know, to my to the best of the recollection of the taxpayer, these were the platforms they used during these years. So if in the future it's, hey, we've discovered the taxpayer had a, an account with this platform in the years prior, you haven't said I never, you know, definitively never had that account. And again, you're not, no one's going to remember everything. I don't remember everything that I do. And that happens I me. Mean, I'm old now, but that, I mean, that's happens to me every year when my accountant does my accounting. Right. Um, it's just kind of, it's kind of the name of the game. Um, so the, once the summons goes out, then you can expect, you know, the IRS to request your accounting. Um, and then you got to figure out how to continue to engage the IRS such that you know you kind of can get to a point where you guys can actually work through the numbers and work through uh, what is the correct income from the activity. You mentioned about the IRS sending a summons to all of the different crypto platforms that you used when they're giving you this IDR and maybe you haven't um, reported all the exchanges or all the platforms you used. I guess my question and one of the big concerns is that generally in crypto taxation, we are told that non-taxable transactions aren't really that relevant. Like if you have a withdrawal or if you have a deposit, that's not taxable. So the IRS doesn't necessarily need to see that you had a deposit or withdrawal because it's not a taxable event. However, you could have a wallet where only non-taxable events occurred on that wallet. It's just a wallet where you transfer funds. It's an intermediary wallet. A lot of people do that. Um, they just use like this intermediary wallet and it's just all transfers. Now, if you don't have any way to report that, since it's all non-taxable events, what's the IRS's reaction going to be when when they ask you for that information and you say, "Yeah, I didn't include that because there's no taxable transactions"? Is that an issue, or? Yeah, that's a great question, Sal. And, and this this is where the difference between audits and past years versus now lies. So, you know, if you get a, you know, if you go through your, you know, your traditional platform ledgers, you'll see the buys and the sells. You also see the sends and the receipts. Mm -hmm. Right now, from my perspective, those sends and receives, you know, and per the IRS crypto FAQs, those are clearly non-taxable events. Where I have been surprised 
in the past year is that the IRS treats those sends and receives as taxable events unless you can show the custody from, let's say, for example, you were to acquire, you know, one ETH on Coinbase in 2018, you send that to, you know, a custodial wallet, and then in 2020, it lands in Coinbase, you exchange it for another crypto or for fiat. Typically, that would have been, oh, this ETH is from the 2018 purchase, that's the basis, that's the sale. Mm-hmm. Now the IRS is taking the position that that send in 2018 was a sale. The receipt in 2020 into the Coinbase account is ordinary income, and then you have a sale, right? And if if you're hearing that, that's obviously an alarming position of the IRS. So before you freak out, let's let's just talk about you know kind of what what the reality is right now with the IRS. This is a new position being offered by the IRS. And I think an overly aggressive position. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the the really um, good things about the IRS, and there's not a lot of people that ever say that, but <laughs> one of the good things is, is that the IRS has a very robust appeals and kind of review process through tax court. Um, and so I think that position has not really played out yet at those next levels, but it should be kind of the primary concern for anybody being audited. Um, and just generally, if you're keeping your records, is that there's a new burden that the IRS is putting on people, which is that it's incumbent on the taxpayer. You know, they, this, you'll hear this a lot in an audit. It's the, it's the taxpayer's responsibility to maintain books and records. Mm-hmm. It's uh, mm-hmm. IRC section 6001. Okay. Now, from my perspective, I do think it's the taxpayer's responsibility to maintain, you know, transaction ledgers over time. And I always recommend people to keep things like, you know, confirmation emails or keep notes on what you're doing, but not all wallets necessarily support all of these transactions. And for anybody who's, you know, been involved with crypto, probably 99.9%, just the volume of sends and receives um, is almost an unreasonable request to ask Mm -hmm. them um, to track all that. But what happens is in these audits is that the IRS gets the data from the third-party summons. They get the data from the taxpayer. They rely on uh, two contractors, TaxBit and Chain Analysis. And what essentially happens is TaxBit generates a report and that report will flag what it considers to be unmatched activity. These sends or receives that, you know, they don't have the information that kind of connects the dots or does the, you know, the chain of custody for those um, transactions or transfers, and they'll just treat them as ordinary income. And so in the past, it was more uh, an exercise of determining what the value was, what the basis was, and what the long and short-term taxable uh, capital gain income was. Now, most of these audits, my primary focus or concern is the characterization of non-taxable events as taxable, Mm -hmm. right? And that can be, I mean, anybody who knows, that can dramatically uh, adjust or increase your tax liability. So that's why it's important that you're providing complete data. You want to make sure you're able to identify what are your wallets and what are not your wallets, right? And often in these audits, um, the IRS will come back with another IDR or information document request and say, hey, what are these wallet addresses? Are these yours or not? And so in those cases, you know, I know from, from when I address them, you know, my my initial reaction on that is, you know, the taxpayer is happy to provide the wallet addresses. 
if there are, are different wallet addresses um, that are being identified by the IRS as associated with the activity, I really want to see the accounting by the IRS because I want to see what transactions those relate to. So I can start to tie back, you know, where, where are you getting this wallet address? Um, and that, what date did this come in? And that is helpful in identifying what this wallet address is even associated with. It may very well may not even be um, the taxpayer's wallet address. Um, and that's, I mean, that to me is kind of where the rubber meets the road now um, in all of these audits, because there's just a tremendous amount of activity out there. And, you know, Sal, I know you probably know it's, it can be very difficult to even ascertain and very time consuming what's actually happened in these different, um, these different wallets over time yeah. um, and how that relates to the underlying, you know, trading activity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been in this space since 2017 and and with Bitcoin.tax since then. And we always kind of say, if you put bad data in, you're going to get bad data out. So it sounds like the IRS is putting bad data in to a software, a software like Bitcoin.tax or any other software that you use, any other crypto tax software that you use, you put this bad data in, this data that is incomplete or inaccurate, you're not going to get the proper results. So then they're coming to the client and saying, here's our results based off of a faulty calculation, prove that this isn't right. And that's really problematic from what it sounds like. That's that's a very frustrating position for the IRS to take. Well, yeah. And I mean, just, you know, for most people who are not dealing with the IRS every day, right, that they're coming into an audit already feeling uncomfortable at best, right? And, um, you know, when you start to see the numbers, the potential tax implications of treating sends and receives, that can be a multiple of what the actual taxable income probably is. Yeah. And the IRS is taking the position, right? Again, even just generally with audits, for the most part, just tax reporting generally, its foundation is what is reported by third parties. What, your, what was your salary from your employer? What was, um, you know, you, you had stock trades that are on a 1099 consolidated. Um, for most typical people, that's where, that's what the IRS will rely on, okay? Or if you're self-employed or have a small business, maybe you get 1099s, you don't report those, right? That's what they're relying on. And, and in those cases, the IRS is, the way the rules are set up and the law set up, the, the presumption is that's the taxpayer's income, which frankly, is kind of reasonable. Occasionally, those those forms are incorrect, but for the most part, those are reliable forms. When the IRS proposes additional income, it's important people understand this. If it's not reported on the third-party return, the general rule is going to be the IRS has the burden at the next levels to show that there was that income, okay? And that's where Say in a traditional case, let's say somebody uh, is involved in a business, they um, are paid in cash frequently, and there are a whole bunch of cash deposits into a bank account. They would do a bank deposit analysis and say, all right, we saw $100,000 of deposits here. Show, prove to us that these are not taxable income or which ones are not taxable income. And there, the IRS is on pretty, pretty strong uh, footing at the next levels. This is the part that I don't know how it's going to play out in appeals and tax court, right? Because we're talking about transaction ledgers maintained by third parties that do reflect the sends and the receives, okay? And by virtue of entering that data into software, it's flagged as an unmatched transaction 
and treat it at the audit level or the exam level as taxable income. Okay. And I can tell you from experience, when you see those proposed uh, adjustments, they can be shocking. Yeah. That's, and that's such a, again, just like a baffling position to take because that's so very clearly is not the way people have been doing things for years and years and years and years in the crypto space. And it just seems like the wrong way of doing things, but you know. You know, the reality is, is that how audit can take the position that it is taxable income as a default setting to me is very problematic. And that's why, you know, I often say to people in all types of audits, let's work with the auditor and let's let's see if we can we can reach an agreement and an understanding that hey these are not taxable events but if they're not you have to understand that there are other opportunities to address this right and the position of the auditor which maybe in generally is more aggressive than um, what appeals would be um, there's going to be an opportunity to present the facts present the law and say look the IRS, what I would call the um, exam function, they took this position, but the burden is on them to say that this was actually taxable income at that time. And for me, you know, I always like to go back to what are the balances, right? Let's say, for example, you know, someone just never had any crypto, opened up a Coinbase account, and then on day two, 10 Bitcoin land in that Coinbase account. There, I would say, okay, that's not unreasonable to say that that's income that received because we never saw that being acquired. There's no proof that was acquired before. Now, maybe there are facts that we can develop that show that it was acquired before. And let's compare that to somebody who got onto Bitcoin early, you know, and bought a whole bunch of Bitcoin in 2013 or 15 or 16 and can, and can actually demonstrate that and can demonstrate that they sent it out of that platform into a wallet um, and then it comes back into the wallet or into a platform in a later date. There, I think a reasonable assumption on that fact is that that was Bitcoin in this person's inventory. They've always maintained it. They never sold it and that they should have, they should be treated as non-taxable events, at least the send and the receive. That's the, the issue that just has not played out, at least from my experience at the next levels. All right, Alex, so you talked about sends and receives, and is that synonymous with withdrawals and deposits? Because if you paid me, for example, if I made a website for you and you sent me some Bitcoin as a payment, that's going to show up as either a receive or a deposit, depending on the platform, and that would be taxable income. So how how do we deal with those kind of things? Yeah, yeah, and, and certainly yeah, the way that I'm describing send and receive, I would say that's kind of synonymous with withdrawal and deposit. And certainly if some cryptocurrency comes into your wallet or is sent to, you know, a uh, platform account that you control and that was payment for something. I mean, no doubt that's taxable income. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. Right. I, I'm just, I'm more focused on regardless of the nomenclature cryptocurrency that you have acquired through trade or purchase and have moved from one location to another, to another, and then into another platform that you've always controlled and owned, um, those would be non-taxable events, right? And But yeah, w- without a doubt, just to, you know, unequivocally, and I, I listened to the podcast that you did with Matt and I thought Matt Metris and you know, I thought he did a great job of explaining the rules. Those r- rules still apply. I mean, no- nothing changes those rules just because it goes to a, you know, a custodial wallet or it goes to a platform. Um, 
but here again, it's it's the default that any receive or deposit, yeah, regardless yes. of the word, is a, is a taxable event. That's why it's so important to have your records because let's say you received a hundred deposits and ninety nine of them are you just moving funds in and out, which is generally the case. Like a, a large percentage of what these people are doing is just moving funds, but one of those transactions is income. You just need to tell the IRS, okay, this is income. Here's what the income is. The rest of these are, are deposits just from my own accounts. So that's why it's so important to have those records to prove that. Because they're going to say all hundred of those are taxable, when in reality, only one is taxable. That's going to increase your taxable burden significantly. So it's super important to have those records. Yeah. And I mean, so people used to always ask me about, oh, I mean, I had this wallet, you know, I sent stuff there. I lost it or I don't, you know, the keys anymore. Like, is the IRS going to kind of treat that as taxable income to me? And I was always of the position for years that like, look, if, if you didn't have taxable activity in there and you lost control of that wallet, no longer have access based on the rules we've already talked about, I don't know how that could be treated as taxable income, mm-hmm. right? Now I am kind of seeing that the IRS is taking a different position. I'm kind of surprised they are. And so in that in that case, it's like at least identifying what is the wallet address and figuring out what the activity looks like. Because if you just send it to a wallet and that wallet has been dormant for years and you can identify that wallet and just through um, the available technology out there to kind of uh, do blockchain explorer um, and show there's no activity, then you have an answer, right? But if it's just, hey, I lost these wallets, I don't know the addresses, certainly at the audit stage, you're going to have... Um, a tough time kind of um, convincing them that that's not a taxable event. Do you think that in light of this kind of new way that the IRS is treating cryptocurrency transactions, do you think that, I mean, we're, we're currently talking about it. I don't see a lot of people talking about this. Is this something that they're going to maybe comment on at some point or amend or realize that they're doing wrong? I mean, what do you think, what needs to happen to, for the IRS to realize like, wow, we're really going super aggressive in the wrong direction here. And it's, it's going to be causing problems for a lot of taxpayers that are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, one, I mean, first, it, it kind of depends how these audits play out, right? Um, in, in the sense of, do people just start agreeing to incorrect assessments? Mm-hmm. Or are taxpayers successful with appeals and successful at tax court? Um, because there will be cases where this will go to tax court and the tax court takes its its role very seriously. It tries to apply the rules and the law equally to every taxpayer. And I just think that the million dollar question is comes down to what is the taxpayer's duty to maintain records for these periods? Will, will if I don't have my wallet addresses and the transaction data from there, um, does that mean that I, I fell short of my duty to maintain the required books and records? If the tax court rules that way, then that's a major problem for anyone who um, who transacts the cryptocurrency. If the tax court takes a different tax, which I hope it does, that in the event of a taxpayer who did acquire a whole bunch of cryptocurrency and then you know can show that and doesn't necessarily have to show the kind of the the chain of custody for the later taxable event. If that is the default, then that puts taxpayers in a lot better position. And and I'm sure that the IRS would probably change change the way its approach on um, those items. Um, 
because I mean, also, I mean, just, just generally, I mean, I don't know, you know, you obviously deal with a lot, a lot higher volume at, at uh, Bitcoin down tax of uh, people involved with cryptocurrency, but I would say most people are using cryptocurrency or engaged for kind of investment, right? It's more atypical that somebody was paid in cryptocurrency. Um, oh, and, usually, yeah. and usually when they are, they're involved with a specific project and paid in that form, that, that type of cryptocurrency the project developing. Right. There are some contractors that get paid in ETH and those things tend to happen. And and now people um, are, are a lot better about issuing 1099s for that kind of contractor arrangement. Um, but, you know, so I just think that just the overall ecosystem of crypto doesn't support a conclusion that every send, receive, withdrawal, deposit is default a taxable income. I think that's that's kind of the where kind of the issue lies. Yeah. And, you know, I'm generally an optimistic guy. And, you know, usually when we talk about when we do these podcasts, and especially when I talk to you about the IRS, generally kind of on the side of the IRS in the sense that I just tell people, make sure you give all the details, submit all your information, and you'll generally be good. That's what I've kind of always said in every podcast I've done with you um, to our listeners is, is, you know, if you're doing the right thing, you generally should be good. I unfortunately am not feeling that way as much anymore in this in this new light of how the IRS is treating some of these audits. And I worry we're talking about simple things like sends and receives, which people seem to agree about since 2017 on how those are, are taxed. What about when you get into more complex things, you know, like liquidity pools and liquidity swaps where somebody's sending a hundred ETH to a liquidity pool, getting 101 ETH back, man, if the IRS starts looking at that and saying, Oh, that 101 ETH is income, that's going to be really problematic. I mean, we're talking about, you know, people that may not be making very much money, but then may have a taxable burden hundreds of thousands it's it's kind of wild to think about some of that stuff yeah i mean i kind of have two answers here so in the first one you bring up a point about you know doing your best to report which i i think there is a key distinction in these audits between people who timely or even after the fact amended or late filed a return to report the activity who are audited versus people who have not reported anything for people that have not reported anything there is, I think, a presumption that that person was not, you're not taking any um, action to report taxable income. Right. And those audits are always, you're all, they're always more confrontational and you have a more skeptical view from the IRS on any sort of explanations and you don't really get the benefit of the doubt. In audits where people did report activity timely, and we're talking about, hey, we we all agree what the what the activity was, but what the taxable treatment. Um, usually, you can get a better result, and usually, you can get um, you know more concessions to get the audit closed. Now, with respect to the liquidity pools question, I think what's what's ultimately happening with that with those types of issues is that in the IRS conducting its own analysis, it will see the hundred go out. It will treat that as a taxable event. And there it's a question of law on whether that is, in fact, a taxable event. Now, that's kind of a discrete legal issue that I have less problem if the IRS takes a position as a taxable event because everyone agrees kind of what happened there um, as opposed just to a movement of assets. Um, and perhaps tax law will ultimately say, yes, that was a, that was a disposition and that was a taxable event. Right. And at least that's a question of law being applied to facts. 
most people that I see operate under the assumption that when they're doing these liquidity swaps, they should really only be taxed on profit. And I know we don't have to get into the weeds of this. It's a little bit more advanced and maybe outside of the scope of just talking about audits. But even in that sense, you know, people are are thinking one thing because there's no rules, right? Like the IRS hasn't released any guidance or laws on liquidity swaps, for example. So it is kind of unfair to assume that a taxpayer understands the proper way that that is going to be taxed. Um, because if you're, if you're doing these big volume transactions, you know, I, myself, I don't do any like liquidity transactions myself, but I've seen plenty of people that they have these huge volume liquidity transactions where in the end of the day, they're only profiting a small amount off that liquidity transaction and, and they should absolutely be taxed on that profit. But to say like, oh, you know, you're taxed on the disposal and then you're taxed on receiving the entire 101 ETH back that you just sent out you know, a day day earlier, I think a lot of people would be shocked if the IRS took, took that position. And it comes again to the fact that there's no guidance out there on this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, each of those, because I mean, obviously there are variations on how those operate and right. what actually, what, what you get back. But I, I will say objectively, you know, it's going to look like that 100 goes out and you receive, you know, 101. Or I know sometimes there's like different transactions where you might get kind of a placeholder token and mm-hmm. that's redeemed later. Yeah, like Uniswap, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I would put it this way. Obviously, that's a concerning and that's not the best result for certain people. But if if that ends up being the key issue in your audit, right, and it's probably material, at least you're focusing on what is, what is an interpretation of the law and the correct application of law, as opposed to everything you've ever done, every send, receive, deposit, withdrawal. Right. Um, being treated as taxable. Right. And so you, you can address address those each time. The other thing, too, you have to keep in mind, and I've probably said this in other podcasts we've done, is while the IRS is a large bureaucracy, you are dealing with one or two people when you're in an audit. Typically in these audits, they have what are called SMEs or subject matter experts who are assisting the revenue agent because the revenue agent, just like I said, I can't do the accounting. They probably can't do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and these SMEs are the ones that are kind of providing support, looking for kind of issues within the data and kind of guiding the hand of the revenue agent on what, what to kind of um, pursue. Um, and that's in addition to these two contractors that are that the, will actually kind of uh, process the data. So to a certain extent, with, with more discrete issues, you might be able to get, if you have a reasonable auditor and explain what's going on, you might be able to get them to agree at the audit level that, okay, that's not a taxable event and, you know, provide the, provide the explanation and some background on what was happening. Um, but you also might get somebody who just doesn't understand or is unwilling to engage in understanding nuances. And that's, if you, ha- if you, if you receive, you know, essentially a proposed adjustment, you know, additional tax that is just way out of line with reality. It's very hard in the audit. And I, you know, often talk to clients about this as we're going through it. It's not final. There is another day, right? And if you're dealing with somebody who is unwilling to engage, you know, practically and reasonably with the data, then you have to understand that you're never going to be able to convince that person. And you just need to get through the exam and get to appeals, get to tax court and try and, um, resolve it there. And then it's, it's kind of unsatisfying for a lot of people because, you know, you want to get the audit closed. You didn't do anything wrong. Um, 
but you have to keep that kind of long view, you know, in mind when you're, when you're going through the process. Right. Yeah. That there is a potential light at the end of the tunnel. It just might be a, a long tunnel, might be a long drive through that tunnel. And what, you know, one, one point on that too, is that you have to keep in mind that the IRS has certain timing limitations on when they can reasonably make adjustments to a tax return. If you never filed the return, or if you just totally omitted it, such that it's you know, material omission, um, which would be 25% or more of the taxable income, um, then they basically have unlimited time. And these audits can take, I'm seeing audits take two plus years, which I know probably is as <laughs> as, as absolutely um, you know, a scary prospect as anything else we've talked about today, because no <laughs> one wants to be audited for two years, but it's just the way these things are playing out. Yeah. I think the goal of most taxpayers here is, is to present all of your information as uh, accurately and as whole as possible. Give them all of your data, get all of the data from exchanges. And and I know in the past, Alex, you've kind of, uh, you kind of have mentioned, and I've always remembered this. You've always said that it's best to provide as much. You can never provide too much information generally with when you're filing a return. So you used to say that you could even like attach a note if you need to, that would explain your situation. Is that still something uh, you would say? Am I remembering that wrong or? Yeah, I mean, no, that's right. I mean, I, I think number one, I mean, just generally when, when preparing the return, you know, you don't want to be overly um, cursory, right? Like, so going back to the example of the person who in 22 engaged in a lot of activity, had a loss, right? And let's say you had, you know, a million dollars of activity and you had a $100,000 loss. You don't just want to put, you know, on the, on the 8949 cryptocurrency, negative 100,000. You want to put on every single trade, you know, with the acquisition date, the disposition date, the basis, the, mm -hmm. the proceeds, and all, you know, just bore them with the detail, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I don't know that, you know, there, there can be, I wouldn't put on a note, you know, saying, hey, I, I lost these wallets or I'm not sure about this. I don't think you need to quite do that. Um, but I think the like the second part, and again, this is looking at this in hindsight, there is at least to protect yourself. You want to make sure that you are at the very least logging wallet addresses that you're using. Um, if you are getting confirmation emails, especially if they're on platform from platforms um, where maybe there aren't good transaction ledgers, you want to keep those. Um, I would probably encourage people to use less wallets. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and if, if you are engaged in any activity where you are being paid or you're paying someone for crypto, it really important. Make sure you get a 1099. I know that sounds stupid, but that 1099 will be substantiation in a way of what the, what actually occurred, you know? And again, I mean, there's a lot better, you know, a lot better position if you are, um, reporting the information contemporaneously it starts the clock for that audit um, and as years go by those older years fall off um, and it just looks a lot better so if a later date you're saying look i reported all this activity it's relatively consistent with my accounting or is consistent with my accounting and these events that i think are non-taxable that's a lot more credible than um, from the irs's perspective than just saying hey now i'm telling you what's taxable and what's not taxable
And one final thing, let's say somebody does have a, a high tax bill due. The IRS is pretty good about um, allowing people to have like payment plans and stuff, right? Like you don't have to pay the entire thing. If you don't have the money, they're not going to come after you. Like you, you just need to pay them a reasonable amount. You, you can get on a payment plan, right? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I think the first thing to think through is that people do get, they get very hesitant to file the return because how are they going to pay it, mm -hmm. right? That is not... Um, that's not addressing the problem. It's just delaying the problem and probably making that problem dramatically worse, right? Because eventually that will probably, that, that chicken will come home to roost, so to speak. So um, timely filing the return leads to a tax assessment. Once the tax is assessed, then you, um, the general timeline is the IRS collection process takes about four to five months to start. The two things the IRS really can do is they can record a lien, which is a public record of a, of a tax balance owed. It's not going to be part of your credit report, but if you you know if you owned a house or a property or you went to buy a house, it would it would definitely be an issue. And then um, the other thing they can do is you know yeah you know, people that have garnishments or taking money from your bank account that's called a levy. They can issue a final notice of intent to levy. So in very short fashion, the IRS they usually will set up a payment plan. It depends a lot on the, how easy it is, depends on how much is owed, and it depends on what your assets and income are. Now, a lot of times when this issue comes up, people have a large tax bill, they have a decent inventory of crypto, that value right now is down, right? Um, and so they don't want to liquidate everything just to pay off this tax bill. Um, the good news is the IRS does have, again, going back to appeals, there are, if you try to set up an installment agreement and they're unable to you know, reach agreement there, you know, before they can take any assets, they have to issue what's called a final notice of intent to levy. And with that final notice gives the opportunity to request an appeal. And in that appeal, you can try to go to set up a, you know, an installment agreement that you can live with. But, you know, as a practical sense, that will buy time, Right. Um, and by buying time, you know, if part of your plan is, hey, the, the market will, will rebound, at that point, I'll have more assets and I can liquidate some and pay this off. Um, then just by filing it and um, doing the appellate procedures, it'll give you some breathing room. Um, also, keep in mind that if you never file the return and then eventually do or you, or you delay in filing, um, the late filing penalty is 5% per month. Uh, capping at 25%. So just by not filing on time or not filing an extension and then filing five months later, you've added 25% plus I think the current interest rate is 7%. So just by filing it, you're kind of capping what the um, ultimate bill will be. So it's kind of one of these things where putting your head in the sand, it, it just it just delays the inevitable. And certainly if you get audited without filing, you know, you can expect additional penalties on top. So it's kind of cutting your losses by just by simply filing and, and avoiding kind of the worst outcomes. Um, you're the pro here. So can you tell our listeners some tips or some strategies for going through an audit? Yeah. I mean, just some, some basic things that, you know, I, you know, I always um, try to achieve. I mean, first and foremost, you need to compile the records and, and you really want to get good accounting completed, right? Maybe that's something you can do on your, a taxpayer can do on their own. Um, but I think you really, you know, with every audit, you can't just say what the IRS is saying is wrong. You have to tell them what is right. You have to give them the number that you think is right and why. 
Okay. Um, second, I would strongly recommend that that you engage with a professional to represent you, someone experienced with audits, but also with crypto, um, just because they can get out of control more quickly than any other audit I've ever seen, type of audit I've seen. Um, you know, I think third is trying to set basic ground rules with the auditor, which I know sounds strange because you're not the one dictating, but to say, look, we'll provide the data, taxpayer will provide accounting, but if you went, if and when you have follow-up questions about transactions and taxable or not, we would like you to provide your complete set of accounting and response so that we can meaningfully address those. What can happen is you get um, a number of piecemeal requests that, you know, frankly, it's just time consuming. And if you're hiring somebody, extremely costly. So it's not, from my perspective, it's not unreasonable for the IRS to ask about transactions or ask about wallets, but it shouldn't just be, hey, I'm sending you a new IDR every month with here's another 50 or 100. I mean, I've been in audits where I've gotten a list of 600, 600 wallet addresses. Mm -hmm. And the client did not have 600 wallet addresses. So it's like, are we going to spend all this time and money going through and on a kind of a this search to find these? And then probably lastly is, you know, along with the um, getting the IRS's audit information is to request an audit report, right? To see what the actual taxable income is, right? And work from that. And I'm not afraid to ask the auditor and their and their subject matter experts, hey, you, that you're a team of three or four or five people and you have two contractors available that are supposedly professional. Can you provide us more data on, on why you think this is not taxable? Can you trace this, right? You know, and put put some, you know, they don't necessarily have to do it, but request them to kind of, hey, can you guys provide more analysis? Um, because again, going back, you know, I think, you know, big picture is tracking this information now is totally different than it was three years ago or six years ago or 10 years ago, right? And what might be more reasonable now in tracking some of the data and the wallet addresses was not really reasonable then. And I, I often point out to the IRS, hey, there wasn't a whole lot of guidance for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. You know, you, there wasn't, you know, strong proclamations on what the IRS's perspective was. So now in 2023, to kind of look backwards and kind of look through the prism of today and mm -hmm. what the IRS's position is, is just not a reasonable position. And I think when you say that to the IRS, I think you get a little bit more tiny bit of empathy. And that's how you can start to kind of get a little bit of benefit of the doubt to say, look, if there's not perfect records here, it's not an intent not to not to maintain them. It just wasn't the reality. Or people that transacted through DeFi protocols weren't even really aware that they weren't going to be able to pull a transaction ledger. So I think, you know, working with them and trying to build good rapport and trying to get kind of a, a process that's fair to the IRS, but to, you know, you, the taxpayer as well, is really, really important. And then Keep in mind, you don't have to agree. If you get an audit report, it's not assessed. You don't owe it yet. Um, you still have opportunities to address it at other levels. And keeping that perspective is really, really important.
All right, Alex. Well, thank you so much for walking us through everything to do with cryptocurrency audits. And I know that you are literally dealing with these audits currently. This isn't just hypothetical situations. These are things that you have real life experience with. So your insight is is invaluable and you know we really appreciate it. And it shows why you need to have a good crypto tax professional in your corner if you're ever audited. So thank you, Alex. Thanks, Al. Good to be here. I wish everyone uh, the best of luck and just uh, just do your best to report everything accurately. Okay, great. Thanks, man. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crypto Taxes Explained Guide. You can listen to this whole series by going to bitcoin.tax slash crypto tax guide. If you enjoyed this series, we'd really appreciate if you left us a positive review on whichever platform you're currently listening on. Don't forget, you can go to bitcoin.tax for any of your cryptocurrency tax calculation needs. Have a great day, everybody. And thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.